Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Leviticus chapter number 9. And on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Leviticus, taking one chapter a week. And we are now in our ninth week in the book of Leviticus and uh, chapter 9 here. And uh, I want to just kind of point out one major truth to you tonight out of this chapter. And uh, we'll, we'll go through it a little bit so you can kind of get the context and understand what's going on. Uh, you'll notice that we're, we're going to skip a lot of verses uh, in this chapter, the ones that deal specifically with the, uh, with, with the details about the sacrifice, uh, because we dealt very extensively with all the sacrifices in the first seven chapters. Uh, we, we spent seven weeks going through all of that. So from here on, whenever it's mentioned, we're not gonna, I'm not going to re-preach those thoughts or ideas. You can go back to the first seven chapters if you're uh, interested in learning about that. Uh, if you look at verse 1 there, it says this, and it came to pass on the eighth day. And I want you to notice that Leviticus chapter 9, uh, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 we're uh, no longer in just an instructional part of the book where Moses is kind of giving instructions, but we're actually in a narrative where we're reading a story. It may not feel like it, but we're reading a story. And chapter 9 basically picks up exactly where chapter 8 left off. If you remember, in fact, just, just go to Leviticus chapter 8 and look at verse number 35. In Leviticus 8, we were reading about the commissioning of the priest. And also the commissioning of the tabernacle. They just got done building. As, we, as you end the book of Exodus, they just got done building the tabernacle. They got done getting everything ready for the priest. And in chapter uh, uh, 7 of Leviticus, we basically saw them do the commissioning of that. We saw them do sacrifices. And if you remember, the way that the chapter ended was with the priest going into the tabernacle. And they were going to be in the tabernacle for seven days. They were going to be performing sacrifices every one of those days. If you're there in Leviticus 8, look at verse 35. It says, Therefore shall ye abide at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation day and night, seven days. This is Moses speaking uh, to, to Aaron and to his sons. And keep the charge of the Lord that ye die not, for so I am commanded. So Aaron and his sons did all things which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So they're, they're, in, the, they're in the tabernacle for seven days in this week when they're being commissioned for the work of the priesthood, and that's where we pick up in chapter 9. We are now on the eighth day. They've completed their seven days. Look at verse 1. And it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he, that's Moses, said unto Aaron. Notice what he's going to have them do. He says, take thee a young calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish and offer them before the Lord. So he's instructing him to make a sacrifice for the priest. But it's not only for the priest. He's also supposed to make an additional sacrifice for the children of Israel. Notice verse 3. And unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, and a calf uh, and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish for a burnt offering. So he's saying, you're going to take a sacrifice for yourself, Aaron, and then you're going to make a sacrifice for the children of Israel. Notice verse 4. Also a bullock and a ram for the peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a meat offering mingled with oil. For today the Lord will appear unto you. And I want you to notice that phrase. That's kind of the important theme of this chapter. They, they started in the previous chapter, 
altar with all the sacrifices to get started, uh, the commissioning of the tabernacle of the, of the priest. Now they've been in the tabernacle for seven days. They come out on the eighth day. They're going to do additional sacrifices. And all of this uh, ends or it all climaxes with this idea that the Lord will appear unto you. If you notice verse four, for today the Lord will appear unto you. Look at verse 5. And they brought that which Moses commanded before the tabernacle of the congregation. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do. And the glory, notice what it says, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. So this is what he's talking about, that the Lord is going to appear, that the glory of the Lord is going to appear, that they're going to be able to see the power of God. Notice verse 7. And Moses said unto Aaron, go unto the altar and offer thy sins offerings and thy burnt offerings and make an atonement notice for thyself and for the people and offer the offering of the people and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded Aaron therefore went unto the altar and slew the calf of the sin offering which was for himself Notice it says that it was for himself, and of course we just read there in verse 6, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 7, that he was to make an atonement for thyself and for the people. And I'm not preaching on this, uh, on this tonight, but there is, a, there, there is a principle in Scripture, and in fact, uh, skip down to verse number 15. We'll, we'll skip verses 9 through 14, because it just goes into the details of the sacrifices that he's performing. We've already dealt with that in previous chapters. But look at verse 15, and he brought the people's offering. So notice, he's making a sacrifice for himself and then for the people. He brings his own sacrifice and then the one for the people. And he brought the people's offerings and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and slew it and offered it for a sin at, as the first. And like I said, I'm not preaching on this tonight, but I do want you to notice that there is a principle in Scripture of, uh, of this idea of taking care of ourselves and then taking care of others. Aaron was supposed to make a sacrifice for himself, and then he was supposed to do a sacrifice for the people. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts 20 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul speaking to the elders of the churches in Ephesus, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. If you remember when Jesus taught about, uh, uh, about judging righteously and, uh, and righteous judgment, he talked about removing first the beam out of thine own eye before you can uh, help your brother. So there's in Scripture this idea that before you go around and start trying to give everybody advice and correct everybody and tell everybody where they're wrong, make sure you've taken care of your own sins first. And there's this idea in Scripture of that. Take heed therefore unto yourself. And then worry about the flock. So he's told, hey, do your own sacrifice for yourself and then do the sacrifice for everybody else. Let's, uh, we're going to skip verses 16 to 21 again. So he's just going through the, the sacrifices that were made there. We've dealt with that. But look at verse 22. And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from the offering of the sin offering and burnt the offering and peace offering and Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. Notice what it says in verse 23. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. How did it appear? Verse 24. And there came fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, notice their response, they shouted and fell on their faces. This was basically God's stamp of approval upon what was happening here. Well, when they get done with all the sacrifices, they get done with all of this being done, 
fire from the Lord basically consumes the sacrifice. And this is what Moses told them was going to happen. He's telling them, hey, the Lord's going to appear today. We're going to see the glory of the Lord today. And we see that God answered by fire. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This is the first time uh, that we see the burnt sacrifice being on, uh, uh, being, being uh, consumed upon the altar by fire that comes from the Lord. It's the first time we see that, but it's not the only time we see that. In fact, I'd like to show you several different times in Scripture where we see uh, a, a very similar thing. You're there in Leviticus 9. Uh, keep your place there, but go with me to the book of 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21. And some of these are going to be familiar to you. These are famous stories. I know you know them, but let's look at them together. 1 Chronicles 21. If you're in Leviticus, you're going to go past Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st Chronicles, 1st Chronicles 21. And just to get a little bit of the context, we'll, we'll read at verse number 15. 1st Chronicles 21, and look at verse 15. So we saw in Leviticus 9 how the Lord answered by fire for, for of course, Aaron and his sacrifice, for Moses and his sacrifice. In 1st Chronicles 21, the Bible says this, And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You remember the story of David? He decided to number the people, and he didn't do it the right way. He didn't do it the way God uh, had instructed for them to do it. As a result, God brings this punishment. As a result, God brings uh, this, this evil upon the people. He's going to destroy them. And, of course, he repents because we serve a merciful God. Look at verse 16. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword and his uh, hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. We're not going to read the whole story. I actually just preached out of the story not that long ago when we were finishing up the study in 2 Samuel. But you know the story where he goes and basically asks. He's asking for the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, so that he can do the sacrifice. Or, uh, the Je Ornan wants to give it to him. And, and David in 2 Samuel makes those great statements about the fact that he's not going to offer something to the Lord that did not cost him anything. And he goes again, uh, he goes ahead and he purchases the entire uh, the entire threshing floor, the entire mountain. He purchases the the the, the animals and the tools that he has, and he create he creates an altar there. And, and we learned from Second Samuel, and if you do the cross references, that this mount is actually Mount Moriah where uh, Abraham offered Isaac up, and this is where Solomon is going to build the temple. This is why the story is, is important. But I want you to notice, at the end of all this, when David builds the, the altar, when he brings the sacrifice, look at verse 26. First Chronicles 21 and verse 26. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. Notice, and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offerings. I want you to notice that when, when Moses 
is establishing, really just establishing the nation of Israel. And they're establishing the tabernacle. And they're establishing the priesthood. And it's just the beginning. They're just getting things going. That God answered with fire and consumed the sacrifice. But then you fast forward many, many years later and you have David who's actually getting right from sin. He's made mistakes. He's made some wrong choices and the wrath of God is upon him in the city. And when he builds the altar, he uh, the Bible says that the Lord answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of the burnt offering in the same way. But this is not the only time that this happened. This is not the only two times it happened in Scripture. It happened again. Let's look at it together. Go to Second Chronicles chapter number 6. You're there in First Chronicles, so just one book over. Second Chronicles chapter number 6. Look at verse 1. We saw that God answered by fire with Moses. And we saw that God answered by fire with David. But God also answered by fire with Solomon. Second Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 1. We just read the story. Mount Moriah is picked as a place for the temple because of the events that happened there with David. And when you fast forward after the death of David, Solomon becomes king and Solomon builds the temple. So now it's not the tabernacle, which was just a tent that was portable that they could move. Now he's building a physical structure, basically the equivalent of the tabernacle, but it's a building and it's, 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 it's very uh, you know, beautiful and it's very expensive. Second Chronicles chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Then said Solomon, the Lord hath said that he would dwell in the thick darkness, but I have built an house of habitation for thee, and a place for thy dwelling forever. And the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. So he's getting ready, and we're not going to read the whole chapter. Obviously, he he has this great prayer of dedication uh, for the temple. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. When his prayer is done, the rest of the chapter 6 deals with the prayer. And in chapter 7 and verse 1, when his prayer is done, notice the response from God. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. I want you to notice, you got the tabernacle being built. It's, the, it's initial. I mean, they just started this church, you know. It's a new thing. It's exciting. They're getting the tabernacle ready. They're getting the priesthood ready. And God answers with fire. Then you've got David. They've been doing this for a while. And David's made some mistakes. And David's messed up. And David's trying to get right with God. And David uh, uh, does an altar there. And he puts a burnt offering there. And God answers by fire. Then you've got Solomon. This church is now established. Now they're taking the next step. Now they're going from a tabernacle to, to a building. They built this great great, wonderful uh, uh, temple, and God answers by fire. But there's another time that this happens. Go to 1 Kings. You're there in 2 Chronicles. You're going to go backwards, past 2 and 1 Chronicles, past 2 Kings, into 1 Kings. There's another story where God answers by fire. And I know you're familiar with the story. It's the great prophet Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's begin reading at verse 17 just to get a little bit of the context. 1 Kings chapter number 18 and verse 17, the Bible says this, And it came to pass when Ahab, Ahab is the king of Israel, wicked king, bringing the children of Israel down a bad road. When Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house. 
in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now, therefore, send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together into Mount Carmel. They're going to have the great showdown in Mount Carmel where they're going to see who is the God that answers by fire. Now, where do you think Elijah got that idea from? Look at verse 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. And we're not going to read the whole story for sake of time. Skip down to verse number 38. You know the story. They have the showdown. The prophets of Baal can't get fire to come down. They're cutting themselves. They're dancing. They're having their worship service. Nothing happens. Elijah begins to mock them. Nothing happens. And then, of course, it's Elijah's turn. He, he builds the, the altar. He gets it all ready. Verse 38 it says this. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and then all the people saw it. They fell on their faces. Doesn't that sound like Leviticus chapter 9? And they said, the Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And here's what I want you to notice. In the Bible, we have four distinct stories where God answers a, a, a sacrifice by fire, but they're very different stories. You've got Moses and Aaron just starting out, just building the tabernacle, just commissioning the priesthood, just getting started in spiritual things. And God answers by fire. You have David who's sinned, who's messed up, who's trying to get things right, who's trying to get a nation that's maybe a little backslidden and get them right uh, where they're supposed to be. And God answers by fire. You have Solomon. I mean, right now, that is they, they are in revival. They just built the temple. Things are going great. God has blessed them. They're, they're succeeding. They've got Solomon, the wisest man on the earth at that time, who's leading them. And God answers by fire. And then you've got Elijah. In the time up to this point, probably the worst time of the nation of the children of Israel. When the people are so backslidden that they won't even, they, they will not take a public stand. He, he says, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They just kind of want to see how things are going to go. But Elijah takes a stand all by himself. And the Lord answered by fire. You say, well, Pastor, why are you showing us all these stories? What, what does this have to do with anything? Well, go to the book of James in the New Testament. James. Towards the end of the, Old Te- of the New Testament, you got Revelation. You head backwards. You find the book of James. James chapter 5. You got Hebrews, James. You get to Hebrews, you went a little too far. James chapter 5. Here's the the thought. Here's the idea. Here's a point. I've got one uh, major uh, point for you tonight. Just kind of one idea. And if you'd like to write this down, you can write it down. And here's the idea. Because God is no respecter of persons. Because God is no respecter of persons. The Bible says over and over that God is no respecter of persons. Because God is no respecter of persons, He responds the same way to the same methods. Because God is no respecter of persons, He responds the same way to the same methods. You say, what what does that mean? Here's what that means. Anything in the Bible that has worked for anyone 
will work for everyone. Every, anything in the Bible that has worked for anyone will work for everyone. Because he, see, what you and I like to do is we like to make excuses as to why we can't serve God. And we might say something like, well, I'm no Moses, and I'm no Aaron, and, and, and I'm no David, and I'm no Solomon, and I'm no Elijah. And Elijah is probably one of the most powerful prophets that we read about in Scripture. But here's what's interesting about Elijah and what the Bible tells us about Elijah, specifically about the story that we're reading about in James chapter 5 and verse 17. Notice what it says. James 5, 17 says this, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. You know what's interesting about that statement? Is that the Bible is telling us Elias, which is the New Testament version of the name Elijah, he's telling us he was a man just like you and I are. He was a, a man, just a regular person. There was nothing special about him. There was nothing great about him. There was nothing. The, 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 the source of his power was not in his own greatness, but in the greatness of the God that he served. The Bible says Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And here's what I want you to understand. Because God, because God is no respecter of persons, he will respond in the same way when anyone uses the same methods. Whether it's Moses, whether it's David, whether it's Solomon, whether it's Elijah, wh whoever it is, because God is no respecter of persons, he will respond in the same way to the same methods. So here's what I mean by that. If it's worked for anyone, it'll work for everyone. If it's worked for anyone, it'll work for everyone. You say, what are you talking about? Go, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is a great marriage chapter, right? We learn all about marriage. Wives submitting to their husbands. Husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it and all of that. We learn all those great things. Ephesians chapter 5 ends in verse 33. It kind of ends with this last statement kind of bringing everything together. And it says this. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33 says this. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now look, I know that people like to read all sorts of marriage books, and I'm not against that. I think that's great. I think it's great for people to read books and try to learn how to be better spouses. But listen to me, the Bible in one verse tells us exactly what needs to be done for you to have a good marriage. If a wife can so, uh, if a husband can so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband, hey, you will have a good marriage. And here's what I want you to understand. You may be looking at your marriage tonight and saying, well, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't understand how this is going to come out right. I don't really see this lasting long. But here's what I want you to understand. If it doesn't last long, it won't be because of the Bible. It won't be because of God. Because here's what I want you to understand. If anyone, if anyone has had a good marriage by leveraging biblical principles, then everyone can have a good marriage by leveraging principles. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? If people say, well, it's 2017. You just can't have marriages like you used to. Says who? God is not a respecter of person. And he responds in the same way to the same methods, no matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter if you're just beginning with Moses and Aaron. 
commissioning the praise. It doesn't matter if you've already been going for a while and you're having problems and you're just trying to get back on track and you're trying to get back to where you used to be. It doesn't matter if you're a Solomon that's experiencing revival and you're building a temple and you're doing great things. It doesn't matter if you're Elijah and no one will stand with you and everyone is against God or everyone is a coward. God is no respecter of persons and he responds the same way when we leverage the same methods. So if anyone has ever had a good marriage, if anyone, look, this ought, to be, this ought to be encouraging to you. If anyone, if there's anyone, if there's ever been a husband and a wife that ended their lives together, loving each other, faithful to each other, is there, if there's anyone that, 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 was, that, that was married till death do us part, and if you were to talk to them just a couple of minutes before they slipped into eternity, and, asked, and you asked them, what was the secret to your marriage? What was the secret to your success? If they would tell you, it's because we just tried to follow what the Bible says. We just tried to do what God says. Here's what, and look, there's hundreds of people like that. There's thousands of people through, through history that had great marriages and they said they were great marriages because we leverage biblical principles. Here's what I'm just saying. If anyone has ever had a good marriage by leveraging biblical principles, then everyone can have a good marriage by leveraging biblical principles. You say, why is that? Here's why that is. Because God is no respecter of persons. Because God doesn't just allow people he likes to have good marriages. He says, look, if you'll just sacrifice the same thing, I'll answer the same way. And he said, well, what about the circumstances, God? He said, it doesn't matter. See, God responds the same way when we apply the same methods. Go to Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. If you open up your Bible in the, in the center, you're more likely to find the book of Psalms. The next book over is Proverbs. We saw this on, on Sunday morning, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But Proverbs 22, look at verse 6. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. The Bible says this, train up a child. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I want to encourage some of you parents. Listen to me very carefully. If you're anything like me, I worry. I worry about my kids. Sometimes I wonder, am I doing enough? Are we doing enough? You know, are we doing enough uh, for our children? And, and is there more that we should do? Or is there, there going to be things that we regret? And, and sometimes it encourages me to look at people that are a little further ahead. We've got some real good teenagers here at Verity Baptist Church. And it encouraged me to see some of the parents have got some teenagers that love the Lord, that go soul winning, that read their Bible. It encourages me to say, because here's what I know. Here's what I know. If anyone has raised godly children by following the biblical pattern, then everyone can raise godly children by following the biblical pattern. You understand that? Say, oh, no, no, they raise good children because this situation and that situation, but if you understood my circumstances, circumstances don't matter. God is no respecter of persons. He responds the same way. He responds the same way when we use the same methods. Whether it's Elijah with Ahab, whether it's Solomon, whether it's David, whether it's Moses. If anyone has raised godly children, and they have, praise God, by following the biblical pattern, then here's, then here's the promise that we can leverage is that if anyone has ever done it, then everyone can also do it. Because God is no respecter of persons. Because God responds the same way to the same methods. You're there in Proverbs, go to Psalms. Right before Proverbs, you got Psalms. Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, short verse, powerful verse. Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, verse 89. 
Psalm 119, verse 89, everywhere, every, everywhere I go, there is pressure. There is pressure from our type of churches to change. People want to tell us that that King James Bible won't work anymore. You know, here's what I want you to understand. Psalm 119, verse 89 says this, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And here's what I want you to understand. Because of the fact that God is no respecter of persons, because of the fact that God is no respecter of persons, he responds the same way to the same method. So here's what I want you to say. Today, people want to tell us, you can't use the King James Bible and still minister to people. You can't use the King James Bible and still expect people to grow and learn and to, and to become uh, followers of Jesus Christ. You can't use the King James Bible and expect that to bring you results. But here's what I know. If the King James Bible worked back in 1611... If it worked in 1612 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, if it worked in 1717, 1817, 1917, then guess what? It'll work in 2017. Amen. Because God is no respecter of persons. God, God is not looking at one generation and saying, oh, I'll answer by fire for you, Moses, but not for Elijah. No, see, God says anyone, anyone who uses the same methods will get the same response. Anyone who uses the same methods will get the same response. So look, if the King James Bible has worked for 400 and however many years, 406 years or whatever it is, if it's worked that long, it'll work today. People want to tell us, you got to get rid of those old hymns. You got to bring in the charismatic music. You got to bring in the contemporary music. You got to bring in the worship band. You got to bring in the Christian hip hop. You got to bring in something that's going to uh, uh, attract a better crowd. Here's what I want you to understand. I just want you to understand the philosophy of Verity Baptist Church. If the, old teams, uh, if the old hymns have worked for anyone, they will work for everyone. If they worked in the past, they'll work today. Hey, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. If door-to-door, confrontational soul winning worked in the book of Acts, it'll work today. Acts 5.42 says, And daily in the temple, in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Acts 20 says, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, but I've showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Keep in mind that these are the men that we, were, we read about their enemies say, these are the men that have turned the world upside down. And I usually want you to understand, if in the, in the first century, when the local New Testament church is just starting, when they're just getting the movement of what's known as the local church going, if door-to-door soul winning, knocking on doors, confrontational soul winning worked back then and they could turn the world upside down, here's all I want you to understand. Because of the fact that God is no respecter of persons, He responds in the same way to the same methods. So if they can make an impact back then, we can make an impact today. Say, we need, a new method. we need a new method. No, we need to just get back to the old methods. We need to get back to the old path. Here's all I want you to say. It's not a complicated sermon. I understand. It's just one simple thought. Here's what I understand. If it worked before, it'll work again. If, it, if it's something that God sanctioned back in Leviticus, Elijah can leverage that at his time. And if it's something that God sanctioned in the first century for the first, for the first century church, then guess what? You and I don't need a, a new method. We don't need a new practice. We just need to work what has already worked. If door-to-door confrontational soul winning worked to get people saved for the previous generations, then door-to-door confrontational soul winning will work in this generation also. Go to Isaiah 58. 
Isaiah 58. Look at verse 1. Isaiah, towards the end of the Old Testament, you got those major books of the, of the, of the Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Isaiah 58 and verse 1. Isaiah 58 and verse 1. Isaiah 58 and verse 1. Isaiah 58 says this. Cry aloud. Cry aloud. The word cry is not, the the biblical word for, what we use the word cry in the Bible is just, is the word weep. Cry means to yell. Sometimes people come to our church and they're like, why why has it got to be so loud? Because the Bible tells me to cry aloud. That's why. And I got to keep you awake. There's two reasons. Cry aloud. But then I want you to notice this. Spare not. Spare not. You know what spare not means? Is don't, don't remove anything. Don't take anything out. See, we believe in hard preaching. We believe in in churches that have hard preaching. But I don't think a lot of churches understand what hard preaching is. So you know what the problem with Joel Osteen says? With with, with Joel Osteen's preaching? The problem with Joel Osteen's preaching is not that he won't yell, although he should yell. But that's not the problem. The problem with Joel Osteen's preaching is not that he preaches, you know, 15-minute sermonettes. Although he should probably preach more, you know, if he had something to say, you know, maybe he could be a little longer. But that's not the problem. The problem is not that, that he, you know, he, he smiles the entire time he's preaching. I mean, you know, he's probably spent a lot of money on those teeth. I mean, he wants to show those things off, you know. The, the, the problem with, with Joel Osteen the, is not, here's the thing, the problem with Joel Osteen is not what he says. If you listen to what he says, everything he says, I'm sure, except for when he's being interviewed by, you know, Larry King and he's really pushing him on something. Everything he says, here's the thing, these liberals, everything they say is fine. They don't say anything that negative. They can't say anything that negative. To have 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people come hear them preach, there's nothing they're saying that's offending anybody. The problem with lame liberal preaching is not what they say, but it's what they won't say. It's what they refuse to say. See, the problem with these lame liberal Baptists, it's not, you can go to some Baptist church, I go to these conferences from time to time, and I, and I think to myself, you know, everything that guy said I agree with. Everything that guy said is fine. There's nothing wrong with what he said. But what he would not say, that's what I have an issue with. Amen. Cry aloud. Here's, here's hard preaching. Spare not. When you don't take anything out. When you go through all of it. When you preach the entire, the whole counsel of God, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. Again, talking about uh, being loud, trumpets are loud, and show, notice, here's our preaching, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. You know what hard, what makes hard preaching hard preaching? It's when you actually point out people's sins. Amen. When you say drunkenness is a sin, fornication is a sin. Shacking up together and living together when you're not married is a sin. When you actually have application, when you point out and you you show people their transgression and and the house of Jacob, their sin. That's what hard preaching is. Now today we're being told that won't work. Get rid of the hard preaching. Get rid of the pulpit. Put a little bar stool up here. Because, you know, most Christians are at the bar anyway. So it'll just make them feel a little more comfortable. Put the bar stool up. And by the way, going to a bar is a sin. Amen. Amen. Going to a bar is a sin. People say, well, I go to the bar and I grab uh, 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 a cup of water. I'm pretty sure you can get a cup of water anywhere else. Doesn't the Bible say to abstain from the appearance of evil? It, it look, it's evil for you to walk into a bar. It's a sin. But here's what these churches do, because most 
churches are filled with a bunch of drunkards. They like to be in the bars, so the pastor sits on a bar stool to make him feel comfortable, you know? They turn all the lights off so you feel like you're at the casino because that's where most Christians are today on a Saturday night. You know, you walk in and you feel like you're at the casino. You walk, and here's what they're telling us. They're telling us, you got to get rid of the pulpit. You got to get rid of the ties. Look, everybody that tells you to get rid of tie, just mark, mark in your mind, they're trying to go a direction of a liberal. They're listening to a liberal. They're idolizing a liberal. You say, does the Bible say you have to wear a tie? It doesn't say you have to wear a tie. But here's what I want you to know. No liberals wear ties. What? I'm talking about preaching. You know, I'm talking about these pastors. Now, could you wear a tie and be a liberal? Joel Osteen. Of course you can. All right? Wearing a tie doesn't make you godly. But look, this idea where you want to make church not feel like church, make church not seem like church, you want to walk in and feel like you're going into a casino. You want to walk in and feel like you're going into a bar. You want to walk in and you know it's got this, you know, you feel like you're at a rock concert. Here's all I want you to understand. Today we're being told this won't work. Today we're being told you got to make people feel like they're not at church. And you just got to have to talk to them and be kind and be passionate. And don't have a Wednesday night service. Put them in small groups and let people, you know, tell each other what they think the Bible says. And here's all I want you to understand. If hard preaching... If hard preaching worked for Isaiah, if God told Isaiah, here's how I want you to do it, then because of the fact, and, and by the way, if hard preaching has worked for centuries, if the man of God standing up, crying aloud, sparing not, lifting up his voice like a trumpet, showing people their transgression, showing people their sin, if that has worked for centuries because of the fact that God is no respecter of persons, because of the fact that God responds the same way to the same methods, here's what I think, hard preaching will still work. Hard preaching will still get results. Hard, now listen to me very carefully. Hard preaching may not get a crowd. I didn't say it would get a crowd. I said it'll get results. See, I have no interest in pastoring a church with 5,000 people in it that are all a bunch of drunkards, that are all a bunch of gamblers, that are all a bunch of fornicators. If I wanted to do that, I wouldn't be doing this. If I wanted to do that, look, you don't think I could get up and give a flowery sermon? I'm sure I could. I could figure out how to do that. I'm sure I could read a book and, and get all their tips. You say, what are the results you're looking for? The result I'm looking for is for young people that love the Lord. The results I'm looking for is for young people that will walk down the aisle and be pure and be virgins. The result I'm looking for is strong marriages. The result, I'm not looking for a crowd. I'm looking for a group. We want our church to be a place. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. We've got sin we've got to deal with. But I'd rather have a place where people are open and love the Lord and are trying to draw closer to God than just a big, huge fun center. Here's, all, here's what I understand. If our preaching has worked in the past, it'll work today. If our preaching has worked in the past to help people grow and get right with God, then our preaching will work today to help people grow and help people get right. You say, well, well why? Why? Here's why. Because if it's worked for anyone, if leveraging biblical principles and, and, and biblical methods have worked for anyone, then they will work for everyone. You say, why is that? Because God is no respecter of persons. And he responds, he responds in the same way to the same methods. That encourages me. I'm encouraged by the fact that I can look in the past, I can look at, at, at the fundamentalists before us and say, you know, if, if it worked for them, if the old hymns worked for them, if door-to-door soul winning worked for them, if, 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 if wives reverencing their husbands, submitting and obeying to their husbands, and husbands loving their wives and, and, and sacrificing, if that worked for anyone, then it'll work for everyone. 
Because God is no respecter of persons. That's what we learned here in Leviticus because we see the story and we think, wow, God did it for Aaron. And then we fast forward and we see in a totally different circumstance, God did it for David. And then we fast forward and we see in a totally different circumstance, God did it for Solomon. And then we see in a totally different circumstance, God did it for Elijah. And here's what I'm saying. Look, you know what I believe? I believe that hard preaching will work even in California. Amen. Everyone's always all down on California. California is so liberal. California this and that. You know, I, I think it'll work here too. I think door-to-door soul winning, I think people will get saved in California. I think that we can grow a church that loves God in California just like you can in anywhere else. Now look, is it going to be the same result? I don't know. Maybe not. But here's what I know. God is no respecter of persons. Here's what I know. God is no respecter of persons. And God responds in the same way when we leverage the same principles and the same methods. It's my heart to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, I, I realize that the, the theme, the lesson tonight is very, very simple. Just, just one thought. But Lord, there might be some people that are struggling with their marriage tonight. They might be wondering, is this really going to work? And Lord, help them to take, help them to be encouraged to know that if leveraging biblical principles has worked for anyone, then leveraging biblical principles will work for everyone. There might be some parents here that are concerned about their children. They might be looking at other people and saying, what, what is it that they're doing? That Why can't I get it done, Lord? Just help us to remember, if, if we will follow the principles in Scripture, we'll follow the methods that you've laid out, you will respond in the same way. If anyone has ever raised godly children for the glory of God. And Lord, help us to be encouraged with the fact that we can all raise godly children. If you've ever used hard preaching, you will still use hard preaching. If you've ever used the old hymns, you will still use the old hymns. Thank you, Father, for not being a respecter of persons. Thank you for making your power available to all of us. We love you, Lord. In your precious name I pray.